by way of review, we're, we're going to discuss a few things. Um, the reasoning behind why this chapter is this week's reading and why we're going to talk about it. <clears throat> and then also, um, then also we're, we're going to discuss what it has to do with uh, the mission of this church. Uh, if you remember, um, both John and Leah had discussed the VBS that we're going to be doing, the Vacation Bible School. And uh, if, you, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've known that we're going through a series. Uh, we, it, we've, it's kind of happened. It's an emergent series on the book of Acts. And uh, the reason why is because the book of Acts makes plain God's plan for evangelism and the way that a church is uh, formed and, and spread. So today we turn, we turn our attention to this wonderful news that Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation, not only for the people of Israel, that is God's people at the time, but also for the Gentiles, and that the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is going to be uh, possible for us. We're, we're, we're going to be able to be in that group of people who are blessed. So this chapter deals with the idea of the salvation of the Gentiles and the uh, separations being removed between Jew and Gentile. So with that in mind, we're going to look at these five areas today. Um, we're going to look at the direction of the Old Testament as it relates to revealing God's plan for, for salvation. We're going to look then uh, at a quick review of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks of witnessing in Acts. We're just going to look at uh, a summary of the book of Acts up till this chapter. And then uh, we're going to look at how this chapter, if you were here with us last week and we were when we were discussing Saul, this chapter <clears throat> actually has a number of parallels between what took place with Saul and Ananias, and those parallels are, are extremely important. Uh, then we're going to look at the gospel that was actually preached by Peter to Cornelius, and then finally we're going to just heavy hit some application. Um, I think that it is our duty as Christians to, when we read the Word, come to it, find it, the truth that is in the Word, both in the historical narrative, as well as what that narrative teaches us about God, and from that, surmise or, or, or come to some way of understanding the principles of who God is and how He acts, and from there, we should live. So that's, that's what I'm going to try to do with this chapter. Uh, because we're not Jews and Gentiles anymore. Uh, we're just, uh, it's different, but it's kind of the same. So over and over again, uh, if you were with us in the <clears throat> in the uh, Sunday school hour, uh, you, my dad almost stole my thunder. But the point of this chapter, uh, the, the context of Acts chapter 10 cannot be understood without being thoroughly studied in the Old Testament scriptures. And because that's the case, we absolutely have to review because, believe it or not, you're not uh, a scholar of the Old Testament. Growing up in America, the chances are that you have memorized and or uh, even verses of the Old Testament that aren't in the Psalms or Proverbs is pretty you know, slim. And if you have memorized some of those verses, you probably can't tell me, you know, you, you probably can't stand up and then preach 
Christ from every chapter of the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying that I can. What I'm saying is that we should be able to do that. And so because of that, uh, I, I thought it necessary to go through a little, just really quick, a few examples of, of the pattern of the Old Testament. So it's my opinion that over and over again in the Old, in Old Covenant scriptures, or the Old Testament, if you will, we see glimpses of the Gentiles coming to worship Yahweh as the one true God and turning from their idols. That is, they left the idolatrous ways of their culture, the, the religious practices of the country that they were living, on, it, living in. They identified who Yahweh was through either the blessing that was on his people or the mighty acts that he had done. And then they recognized him as the only God among whom there, there you know, is no other God. And, and that God is uh, the supreme sovereign. And then they turned from their idolatry. So we're going to look at a few examples. Uh, if you remember the book of Genesis, there's an account where uh, Joseph is, arrives in, in Egypt and throughout Joseph's time in Egypt, he's put in prison and he's slandered and persecuted. He eventually, through the interpretation of a dream, rises to the position of power, and Pharaoh gives him the position and says to, to Joseph, you will be like me in all respects except to the throne alone. That is, Joseph had equal power to Pharaoh over the entire kingdom of Egypt. And at that time, Egypt being probably the, the world power of its day, uh, Pharaoh uh, had just installed this Yahweh worshiper, Joseph, as the most powerful person on the earth at the time. Now, arguably, there were other civilizations which might have been rivalrous, but in a very real way, uh, you can surmise later from the, the, the story that Egypt saved the world through what took place. Joseph interpreted a dream of, of Pharaoh's, and then Pharaoh comes to recognize that Yahweh is God through Pharaoh's, or through Joseph's obedience. And in fact, at one point, Joseph's father uh, comes and actually blesses Pharaoh. And so this idea is that the, the greater always blesses the younger. And so it's an indication that Pharaoh being blessed, he's actually saying, I need to be blessed by you rather than Egypt has something to give to the people of God. And so this is a, a really early uh, situation, but Egypt is prepared for this famine, and it says that all the world came and streamed to Egypt uh, to, to find food during the famine. And the famine was a very, very severe famine, uh, such that if that had not taken place, and had the people of God not found extreme favor because of Joseph's actions and, and Pharaoh's conversion to recognize uh, Yahweh as the one true God, the it's possible that the people of God would have been, you know, wiped out. Now, of course, God is sovereign and wouldn't allow his promise to be uh, nullified to Abraham. However, it's an extremely important uh, first look at this pattern. So when the Hebrews leave Egypt, there's a mixed multitude that goes up with the, the Hebrews as they're leaving out of Egypt. And the reason why this mixed multitude went up is probably a number of reasons. One, Egypt was totally demolished through the plagues. Their economy was absolutely ruined. Uh, the, the blood filling the Nile destroyed their port. 
the the hail destroyed their crops, it would be years before Egypt would be a, a power again. And God call, caused supernaturally for the Hebrews to find favor with their Egyptian neighbors. And those Egyptians gave Israel the gold, the silver, the other precious stones that they would then use to give as an offering to the Lord to prepare the temple. And so immediately we see this take place, not just with Pharaoh, but also this mixed multitude. They recognize the favor of God on the people of of Israel, the Hebrews, and they go with them. That's the same thing that happened with Moses. He was raised as an Egyptian, but he recognized, I would rather be with the people of God than in the palaces of Egypt. So after Egypt, after the Hebrews leave uh Egypt, and they enter into the land of Canaan. There's this account where they send some spies into the land, and um, Rahab, this woman, uh, I believe it's the city of Jericho, she, she's got a place for these spies, and she hides them when they tell her, you know, there are people looking for us. And these spies stay safely with, uh, with Rahab. Now, Rahab actually... Uh, if you think about what she did, she was a traitor. She allowed the people of Israel to come in and spy out the land of Canaan right before they came and destroyed it. Uh, that would be uh, like you having a secret door to Congress and there's a guy who wants to like put a bomb in it. That's what Rahab did. I mean, she was traitorous to her people, but she was traitorous for the reason somehow she sovereignly knew these are the people that God has chosen to give this land, I want to throw my lot in with them. So, you know, we're not even out of Genesis and Exodus. You know, we're not even out of the Pentateuch yet, and uh, maybe into the book of, of Joshua. But Ruth follows Naomi back to Israel and worships Yahweh. She says to Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. And, and your God will be your God. Your people will be my people. She makes a promise. Ruth Ruth sees the godliness of this woman, Naomi, and probably her sons, and she sees, she sees how God has blessed Naomi and recognizes that Yahweh is the one true God. Now, she was not, again, she was not a Hebrew, and she actually is so honored by God to become part of the lineage of Christ. That is, Ruth, a non-Hebrew, was actually one of the great grandmothers, I forget which great, of, of Christ. And this is, this is an amazing thing. The same pattern of Ruth saying, where you go, I will go. Uh, when, when David's on the run, uh, he's running from Saul. At one point, he fo- f- finds these guys uh, named, uh, I think it's the Cherisites or something. I, I'm terrible at old, old covenant pronunciations. But this leader of that group, there were 600 fighting men. This leader of the group named... Um, Ittai, the Gittite, or in some translations, Ittai of Gath, that is uh, the same place that the Philistines were from. A Philistine, Ittai the the Gittite, he follows David and says to him in the same pattern of Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. He, He says it a little bit more fancy in this king language. He says, you know, wherever the king decides to make his habitation, I'll be there as well. And so uh, King Darius recognizing the favor of God on Daniel, just like Pharaoh recognizing the favor of God on Joseph when they both, uh, in separate accounts, interpret dreams. Uh, In this case, King Darius sees uh, David, or sorry, Daniel, who had gone into the lion's den 
and come out just fine, he makes the proclamation that there is no God but Yahweh, and everyone throughout the kingdom should worship him. So uh, it's a pretty, you know, extravagant situation. Jonah, now this isn't just a king in this account with Jonah, this is an entire nation. Jonah goes and preaches a message of destruction. He doesn't even give them any warning. He says, 40 days left and Nineveh's destroyed. I mean, you know, 40 days left, atomic bomb goes off, Nineveh's gone. That kind of warning. That was Jonah as the prophet. And he, he goes and says that, and they proclaim a nationwide fast to the man, including animals. And the king says, perhaps, who knows, God may turn and relent from his destruction. And they're all spared. Every single one of them is spared. The nation of Nineveh is fine. Everything's okay. And this is over and over again, the situation in the Old Testament. And then finally, probably one of the most beautiful ones, Naaman the Syrian is instructed by Elisha to go and wash in the Jordan River, foreshadowing the washing of baptisms, and is totally healed of his leprosy, and then worships Yahweh, and he, and he says to Elisha, pray for me and pardon me so that when I have to go in to my uh, master's um, temple, that you know when he goes and, and bows down to those gods, pray for me so that my idolatry wouldn't be counted against me. It's a serious conversion that Naaman goes through. So this is the trend in the Old Testament, and um, just as in the New Testament, people in the Old Testament are saved by faith in who God is and what his promises are, and they come to recognize God as the only true God, and they turn from idolatry. That's the same type of pattern. You see it over and over again in Paul's writings, especially in the book of Thessalonians. It talks about how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And, and so biblical salvation is always that, faith in God's promises, turning from idolatry, listening to the warning of judgment and, and repenting. And so this is the entire direction of the Old Testament. It's more and more, it's, it's, it's making, point, making the point plain, this is where we're going, gospel focus towards the Gentiles. That's where we're going. So God has throughout all of redemptive history had examples of this, uh, and this is like the most moderate sampling, by the way, of these situations. There's num- a number of different ones. Uh, the, the Queen of Sheba coming up and recognizing the glory of God on Solomon. I mean, you can just, you can find them everywhere. And because of this, it makes the, the thing that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, the Judaizing effect of some of these opponents uh, of Peter, uh, it makes it even more heinous and, and a tragedy. So this is, was one of the purposes of Christ's atonement. It wasn't just to pay for your sins. It was also to break down the dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile. And uh, it's so much so that this actually is the transition point in the book of John. If you're familiar with the book of John, there's, there's uh, a number of chapters that describe John uh, John the Baptist, they describe Jesus coming out and, and, you know, coming out on the scene and then doing some miracles in the land. And then there's this transition point in the book. And then Jesus goes and has an upper room discourse, and then he's crucified after the end of those chapters. And the pivot point in the book of John transitioning from his earthly public ministry, that is the, the signs, wonders, and miracles that he was doing, the transition point from that theme in the book to the theme of his crucifixion is when the Greeks show up and start looking for him. In John 12, 
uh, verses 20 through 24, he says, now among, uh, it, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So there's this idea of a mediation. They come up to Philip. Philip then tells Andrew, and Andrew and Philip together go to Jesus, and and they tell them, they they tell Jesus this, and Jesus has this moment. If you're familiar with the book of Luke, I think it's either chapter 11 or 12, but when Jesus sends out the 70, and they do signs and wonders, miracles, they cast out demons, they heal people. Um, they come back and report to Jesus what has happened. And Jesus has this stunning prophetic moment. It's like they're over here talking, and Jesus is in this revelation-filled moment. And he says, I saw Satan fall from, from heaven like lightning. This is that kind of response. Jesus, Jesus is told that some Greeks are here to see him, and he's like, okay, well, let's set up a meeting. No. He didn't get out his planner. He said, now is the time. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the identification point in the book of John that the gospel is is finally ready. The preparation of Israel in the fullness of their sins is coming about. And when the Greeks show up, Jesus knows that's a prophetic sign. He's not only a prophet, but also interprets. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's again, you got to ask yourself, why are the responses in the scriptures like this? Well, that that's that's the reason here. He says, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then the rest of the book is all about his crucifixion. So uh, with that in mind, that is how you have to read the book of Acts. Jesus is saying the point of my death is for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. That's, that's one of the main points of Jesus's death. And so in the book of Acts, coming after the gospels, uh, that is the entire point of the book of Acts. It's the unfolding of the redemptive plan of salvation that God established, that was accomplished through Christ, being worked out in a cultural context and brought to the Gentiles. And so this is exactly what Jesus prophesied before his ascension. In Acts 1.8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And real quick, I'm going to go through uh, a summary of the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts 1, after his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in the day of Pentecost at Acts 2. There's a number of nations who are gathered there, Gentiles, uh, even though they were Hellenistic Jews, that is, they were converts to Judaism, but they were really Greeks. And then the fruit of, the, of Pentecost is demonstrated in Acts 3 and 4 with the signs and wonders done by Peter and John and their boldness in proclaiming to the religious leaders that Jesus is the Christ. And then finally, um, making a defense before them and... and um, then encountering some persecution. And so after chapters three and four, uh, in verse, uh, there's a little brief blip on the radar that we won't talk about with, uh, with some lying to the Holy Spirit and people dying. Uh, in Acts six and seven, as the church grows, there's this persecution that, uh, that is about to happen. So there's some deacons that are appointed to these apostles 
or that are appointed to, to help out the apostles. And these deacons begin to manifest the same fruit of apostolic uh, living. So one of these deacons, Stephen, which we talked about a few weeks ago, he's martyred for the witness of Jesus being the Christ. And in Acts 8, a persecution comes against the Christians and they are spread out into Judea and Samaria where they preach the word with boldness. Now, as you can see, it starts in Jerusalem. There's an ascension that takes place. And then from that ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is established. And then from that church, we then see witnessing by Peter and John and the other apostles to the nation of Israel of who Jesus is as the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And that persecute the the that witnessing causes a persecution to take place. And then they are spread out into the surrounding area of Judea and Samaria. Remember, this is the book of Acts is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Acts 1.8. They're going to witness in, Ju- in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the utmost parts of the earth. That is, places that aren't uh, Israel. Um, so after this takes place uh, in Acts 8, there's a persecution that comes, and then Philip preaches in Samaria. The apostles come and lay their hands on the Samaritans. Now, what takes place in the in the account with Philip and the Samaritans and the apostles coming from Jerusalem to pray for them uh, is remarkable. Now, I didn't develop this fully in the last uh, few weeks, but when the when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, this is an absolutely spectacular development for the Jewish mind, because in the 5th century BC, five centuries earlier than this chapter, the Samaritans had broken fellowship uh, after the return from exile that the, that the Israelites made. They had, re- they had uh, never re- regained fellowship, and they had set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim uh, in, uh, in which they were actually practicing religious sacrifices, that is the sacrificial system that that Moses had established in the city of Jerusalem. And so, uh, well, that eventually landed in Jerusalem. Uh, So the Samaritans and the Jews completely hated each other. They were rivalrous religions, effectively. And so what Jesus had prophesied in the book of John chapter 4, when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of that uh, event. And we, we've talked about this before, but I really think it's important. John 4, 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't make sense unless you understand the Samaritans had their own temple on the mountain on Mount Gerizim. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then the payoff verse is 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the the astonishing thing to the Jewish mind when the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans is that the Holy Spirit was the sign of the fulfillment of the new covenant. That is, in the book of Ezekiel and other major prophets, God had promised his people, you're not going to be stubborn and rebellious. I'll remove your idolatry from you, and I'll put my spirit within you. And so the the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit coming on Samaria was 
an absolutely appalling idea to the Israelites. They thought that they were the people of God, only chosen nation, and that yes, somehow Abraham's descendants are going to spread throughout the earth, but that's really going to be people coming to Judaism to worship Yahweh. And what has taken place is the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans, people who weren't following the Pharisaical system of Israel of that day. They weren't following the law in the way that the Israelites were following it. And so it's a sign that God honors and uh, the people of Samaria enough to cause them to hear the gospel. When they repent and turn, then the Holy Spirit comes, making the 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 making the the identification of the people of God plain. It is only those who hear what God is saying, that is the gospel of reconciliation that came through Jesus Christ, and then do what he says to do. That is, are water baptized and are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That means it's no longer the people of God as Israel. Also now, somehow, the people of God includes Samaria. So it's no longer a, a national uh, identity kind of thing. This is what's taking place. And so in Acts 9, after the Samaritan thing takes place, Acts 9, who was persecuting the church, encounters Christ on the road. And then after that encounter, Saul, the one who wished for Christianity to be stopped, is now going to become its greatest proponent and advocate. And so there's all of these these flippings that take place in the book of Acts. Early on with Peter and John, they are men who it says the, the Sadducees or the San, Sanhedrin, uh, recognized that they were not educated men, yet they provide a history-informed gospel defense of Jesus being the Christ. Later, it says that Philip, one of these non-educated men, proves that Jesus is the Christ. And again, so they're going from ignorance, being filled with the Holy Spirit, then now they're, they're wise and able to argue. So same thing with Saul. He goes from hating God to recognizing uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. So in light of what takes place with Saul, what we what we talked about last week, how there were these visions and a vision, and and that's that's where we end up today. So um, I'm going to have to move quick. <laughs> Unlike Saul, Cornelius is this man who loved God. So this is a foil of Saul. He's a man who loved God and he loved his neighbor because he was giving alms, and it says he prayed to God continually, that is, he didn't waver in his devotion to Yahweh. So he's the, he's one of these examples of a Gentile Yahweh worshiper. And yet, unlike Saul, he is a good man. Uh, just as Saul encountered a light from heaven on the road to Damascus, so also Cornelius sees a vision of what it says, an angel of God, or the word is literally messenger of God, um, which I believe possibly is actually Jesus. Later on, he calls him a man. And it says, when Cornelius sees this vision, uh, he then says, who are you, Lord? And that angel or messenger from God doesn't rebuke him. Over and over again in the Old Testament, anytime an angel's worshipped, they immediately stop the man or woman who's doing the worshipping and say, don't worship me, I'm an, only an angel. And yet Cornelius identifies this messenger from God as as the Lord, who are you, Lord? And, and this angel or messenger never... Never really says no. So um, about the ninth hour, he saw a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, what is it, Lord? He says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial. So this devout man, Cornelius, then has this vision. And just as Saul had a vision of the Lord telling him to send for Ananias, so also Cornelius has this vision telling him to send for Peter. 
Okay, the parallels are beginning to build here. Peter himself has a vision, just like Ananias. But in this vision that Peter has, it's a, ver a very different vision. It's not explicit. It doesn't say, go pray for Saul. It, it's a prophetic vision. It's a vision that's filled with prophetic imagery. And that prophetic imagery begins, it, it's used by God to tell us of the enormity or, or the, the large scope of application of what's about to take place. As in Peter seeing this vision, this... Um, if you will, prophetic moment uh, or or ecstatic vision, a vision that wasn't taking place in the natural, Peter sees this, and so he knows that something must be taking place. It says that he's perplexed, and he, he has no idea. But in this vision, the four corners of the sheet, they speak of the four ends of the earth to which the gospel is, is on its way. That's the destination of the gospel. Um, four always speaks in the Bible about the totality of the world, either the four winds, the four corners, uh, even to some extent the four living creatures, it talks about the entire world, and uh, Peter's instructed to kill and eat these animals, the reptiles, various birds, and these animals would have been, according to the Jewish law, completely forbidden, not able to be eaten, or else it would make you a ceremonially unclean person. And so Peter is basically... He says to the Lord, he totally objects, and he says, I've never done anything like this, God. I've never eaten anything that's unclean or, or common. And God rebukes him and says, do not call what is uh, what God has made you know, permissible, don't call that unclean or common. And so this lo lowering and raising of the sheet takes place, it, it takes place three times three being the prophetic number of the fullness of God. That is, you know, there's three parts of the Trinity. Um, you know, three biblically is just a number that speaks about the fullness of an event. Um, so this, this vision takes place, and Peter's totally, he just doesn't get it. He's inwardly perplexed. And um, because of this, Peter is just, he doesn't really take any action. These guys from, you know, from Cornelius show up, and Peter is told by the Holy Spirit. Now notice, Peter doesn't figure it out on his own right away. Peter hears from the Holy Spirit to go with him. And like Saul, uh, Peter, after having his vision, though he saw something, he didn't really see. He was kind of blind. And so the literary, literary parable or parallels are extremely, extremely beautiful here. So the Holy Spirit's going to open his eyes in the next few moments. Cornelius sends messengers to receive Peter. Peter, hearing the voice, goes with them and uh, accompanies them. And then they go, and Peter finds this huge group of people who've arrived. Now, Cornelius, as a righteous man, knows that he's just sent for an apostle to come. And so what does he do? He gathers his family. He gathers his friends. He wants all of his household to hear the word of the Lord so that they can all do it together. Uh, when arriving at Joppa, seeing the crowd that Cornelius gathers, Peter is like, hey, uh, I know that you guys are Gentiles, and he makes an objection. He says, uh, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit any other nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now, what Peter does is he he explains to them, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't be here. Um, but because God's opening my eyes, I have shown up. And then uh, Cornelius responds, he describes a vision, and Cornelius asks Peter 
This is a special and important phrase. Cornelius says to Peter, we'd like to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And this is the exact same phrase that Christ uses in the Great Commission. This is the way of the Bible, this is the way of the literature of the Bible to explain the Great Commission is beginning to be fulfilled in this chapter. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go for this reason, or go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Earlier in the Gospels, it says, the people come to the Lord and say, what should we do? What are the works that God requires for us to do? And Jesus says to them, the work that God requires is that you believe in him and the one who he sent. So the gospel comes to Cornelius. Peter, obeying the Lord, tells Cornelius all that Christ commands of them. Following this pattern he gives to them, we've been talking about this week and week, uh, week in and week out, these four elements of apostolic preaching. It's a history-informed gospel. It includes a call to repentance. It asserts or makes plain or defends the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only means by, of salvation for men. And then it also includes, either at the end or at the beginning, a warning of judgment. And uh, over and over again, if, you're, if you ever preach the gospel and you don't hit all four things, you've done it wrong. <laughs> um, I want to say that nicely. If you, if you ever forget one of the elements, you should go back and return and include one. Because without all four, you've not, you've not uh, properly given them a, a reason to believe. Um, so with those four things, he says uh, in Acts 10... 42 through 43, this is the summary of his gospel. He says to them uh, in verse 42, and he commanded, he being Jesus, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, here's the warning of judgment, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets, there's history, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, exclusivity of salvation, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So, with that in mind, uh, this is an amazing happening, what's about to happen. So, Peter speaks these things and the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles and we have the, the day of Pentecost all over again. They begin speaking in tongues and worshiping the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit falls, verse 44, verse 45 is then the, the sign and the wonder. It says, and there, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Remember how we talked about with the Samaritans, the Jews were amazed because the Samaritans, the rivalless religion with their own separate different temple, have, have now received the Holy Spirit. Now it's people who don't even worship God. Uh, people who don't keep the law at all, non-circumcised people who have not followed God's law, that is the law of Moses, they, they are now hearing the gospel and having the Holy Spirit fall on them. They haven't accomplished or tried to accomplish righteousness on their own, and, and they have not you know, subjected themselves to the customs of Israel. And so the, there's an exception. There's a, this is a concern for these Judaizers. It says, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. 
Then Peter declares, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have been, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Key point, case closed. The Israelites received the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith and by turning from idols. That is the way in which all people receive the gospel and, and therefore the Holy Spirit. The Israelites did not receive the gospel because of, of their obedience. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, they're fulfilling what Jesus had done in the great, had said to do in the Great Commission. Teach them all that I command you. And, Jesus, and Peter then says, all that Jesus commanded us was for you to believe in Jesus Christ and to turn from idols. And then he goes on to say, you should receive water baptism. Those are the, those are the things. Uh, so the gospel comes and the circumcised are amazed because these, Ju- these Greeks were not following the practice of Judaism. They hadn't been circumcised. They weren't following the law, etc. And then Peter demonstrates the kindness of God in the gospel, showing that these Greeks have received the gospel by faith. Peter says they received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now, I already blew the lid off this, but how had the people in Jerusalem received the Holy Spirit? By faith in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the works of the law, not by their circumcision, not by following the law, abstaining from particular foods, attempting to follow God's laws to the T. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't follow God's word. I'm saying that's not how you come to salvation. That's not how you hear of God's uh, dealings. And it's plain that uh, this is the pattern going forward for all of the church. The baptism of the Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles is the evidence that Scripture uses to demonstrate that thou, that they, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the non-Jews, are now co-heirs with the Jews of the same promise made to Abraham. What Christ had already accomplished on the cross was now being worked out in a cultural context. Galatians 3, we don't have time to go there, but it says, uh, Galatians 3, does he who supplies the Holy Spirit and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's the way the Holy Spirit comes to a group of people. They hear the gospel with faith and they're water baptized and baptized in the spirit when the apostles lay their hands on them. So, uh, <clears throat> now again, I, as I said, what, what Christ had already, past tense, before Acts 10, what Christ had already accomplished in the spiritual was now being worked out, it was being fleshed out in a cultural context. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Paul explains what took place. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both, that is Jew, Jew and Gentile, that's the context, I'm not reading into it, that's the context of this verse, both Jew and Gentile, uh, one, and has broken down in his flesh, that is through his body, through Jesus's body, by atoning on the cross, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's specifically talking about the cultural provisions of the law of Moses that he might create in himself, again, in his body, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's kind of talking about communion uh, subtly. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in his flesh... He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So, that's amazing. 
Praise be to God. We, Gentiles, you and I, who were not part of the nation of of Israel, who our ancestry, you know, I, I trace my ancestry back to Germany. Some of you guys, heart of Africa, you know, uh, other people in the room, different nations in Europe. We had no chance of coming to God had that not taken place. And Acts 10 is the outworking and the first sign, the first wonder that the gospel is coming to the Gentiles. So, uh, this is a mystery, not that the Gentiles would be blessed in some way, because everyone in the Old Testament knew that the promise to Abraham was to be a blessing to all nations. The, th- the thing that was a mystery that was, un- that was veiled before Christ was that they would be blessed in one group of people, that is, the new people of God, the church. So, uh, with that theological framework, I want to really quickly just without much comment, give us at least five applications that we should make upon hearing this type of teaching. Um, This account should inform how we go about preaching in this neighborhood in the next few months. And this is why we're going through the book of Acts. It's not a a tack-on idea. Uh, As we minister to those around us, we should not demand complete gospel maturity for those who wish to come to the Lord before they should be admitted into the fellowship both of our in the church, and that is to be ministered to in, in the future. As in, when we preach the gospel, they are, they're not going to be, uh, you know, seminary students the next month. I, I speak in hyperbole, but I, I just want to say, when you preach the gospel, if you're part of the VBS, you're part of Kids Rock, you're part of Rock Campus Fellowship out at Wright State, if you preach the gospel to people who've never heard, you need to preach that that four-element gospel, at least, and and then open up people to the possibility, that is, make it plain to them that they do not have to clean themselves up before coming to God. It's just not in the gospel. It's just not in the Bible at all. Uh, Philip, with the Ethiopian eunuch, Phil, the eunuch believes that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, and he then says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? There's water right over here. And Philip's like, well, I don't see anything on my checklist, so let's do this. That that should be how we go about. It's actually the case that people need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and need water baptism because of the things that, that those two uh, sacraments do, or to experiences do. Maybe they're not sacraments. But when witnessing, we should, should we hear a person comment on their unworthiness? That is, they make objections to why they can't come to church or why you can't talk to them. Should that happen, uh, we should chime in with a great amen. You are unworthy to come to God, but praise be to God, he has already, through Christ, come to you, and he's come near to you. Um, we should not at all uh, despise those who would be marginalized or the poor or the messy or the unfit or the socially awkward or those who can't speak well or those with disability. We should instead not cower and alienate ourselves from them, but rather embrace them, including not demanding that they dress like us, listen to the same type of music, eat the same food, use the same type of words, have an iPhone or not an iPhone, or whatever you want to, whatever cultural division you want to create, you shouldn't, because there is none post-cross. And they can't 
we can't require them to conform to external regulations before they even approach the Lord. And those external regulations do not reform the heart nor modify an unrighteous will into a righteous one. Only the grace of God and the blood of Jesus can do that. We should totally disarm those who would establish for themselves moral codes, which they must perform before approaching God, and instead, boldly, articulately, and with the ability to prove, we should proclaim a gospel that in Christ, God has already approached them and made them acceptable. And with hope, with faith, we should expect for God to fit people in their place in the body. That is, he will provide grace for us, for our community, and for them to go through the cultural tensions and difficulties that take place whenever uh, two different cultures come together. They may be, again, they may be smelly. They may be young and loud. And I, you know, I don't like young, tiny, screaming girls. I, you know, it was it was a sign of God's grace that I was able to be with Becca Trimbach when we watched them for that long. But it, there will be cultural, there will be cultural stuff. There will be that. Uh, and God, we should be expecting and praying for it. We should be, we should be hoping that God will manage that process. And then finally, we should pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would move mightily during the vacation Bible school and the campus outreaches in the next few months opening the eyes of the blind to see Christ as the Savior, not of the Jews alone, but of the whole world. So let's do that now. Father, we pray that you would mightily convince us of the beautiful free grace of the gospel, that we would not turn it into licentiousness, but Lord, more than that, we would not create moral codes by which we think we need to live before you by, but rather would come to your word and adopt its truth, taking it, uh, taking it on as the only way to live before you. God, that we would be those who, unlike the Pharisees, pay attention to the weightier provisions of the law, that of mercy, graciousness. God, we ask that you would give us today a, a great desire to see young people uh, through this vacation Bible school and older young people through the campus ministry come to hear about what you've done on the cross. We pray that you would help us be able to speak about those four things, a gospel that has historical context, a warning of judgment, the exclusivity of your son's name alone, and finally, a call to repentance. That you would give us the ability to articulate those things, that they would be so ingrained in the way that we think about your gospel that they would flow naturally when we're speaking with people. Lord, we ask for your spirit to prompt us to disarm people's objections that they would create between them and, and yourself. We ask that you would give us great grace to see the lies of the enemy and totally disarm and pull down every stronghold that would raise itself up against the knowledge of, of your son and of what he's done for us. Lord, we ask that we would be people who live out the, the word of God and that we in our community would not have cultural divisions, that we would not establish practices that are man-made but would rather fully accept what you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.